RPG lessons learned. When the game is over, when your players are gone, that's when lessons are learned. We are at RPG LL Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, RPGLLPodcast at gmail.com, and check us out online at RPGLessonsLearned.com. Hi, welcome to RPG Lessons Learned, the show where you can learn from our mistakes. And with me today is Mike. Hello. Brian is taking a bye week. He's dealing with an HVAC issue, and I'm sure we can all understand wanting to have air conditioning in this humid, warm environment. Absolutely. <laughs> so last time we talked to Pathfinder, Mike, we talked about the, uh, well, shoot, I forgot what we called it. What do we name that game? Mummy. Mummy's the word. Yep. We talked about the mummy game underground and, and what a great game it was and how it laid the seeds from um, little moment to moment from from set piece to set piece to pull you guys through the adventure. So we had a really strong adventure in Mummy's the Word. And then we followed on to that. Our very next game was this game, which we later named Knife to Meet You. We love the puns. Yes, I love the puns. You guess, love the puns. We I appreciate said, the puns. You love them. When I send out the show notes, for those of you listening at home, I, I, I title the session and I usually use a pun. Um, anyway. What happened in Knife to Meet You was I opened the session on a little bit of atmosphere, a little bit of telling you guys what was happening in Sandpoint, how people were responding to you. People were totally freaked out by the giant underground orb, but the town wizard, Ilsoria Gandithus, had had examined it and pronounced that it had been here for much longer than all of you guys. But still, um, I started off the session with the, the hard feelings around Sandpoint about you guys. So good stuff there. Um, then moved on and, and learning my lesson from last time, learning that it worked so well, I decided to pull you guys right into the adventure. So I literally had an assassin walk up to you guys in the middle of you guys in the middle of your of your morning drinks and stab Valeros right there in front of you and then take off. How was that for a session opener, Mike? I thought that was actually really awesome and really crazy just for, you know, someone to openly attempt to you know assassinate one of our characters in the middle of the morning and just just jump right into it right it was it was unexpected it it kicked the action off and it set a a really huge you know tension hook right from the beginning of the game and i think it's the probably that tension hook that would have led to some of the issues we encountered later in the game which i don't want to get into yet but a really good grip on the tension and a really good draw so also some some things going on in our real lives in and around this game is Nathan. Um, Nathan was had, had left the company where we all worked up to this point, and we thought he was going to move out of town. Or, or yeah, we all thought that, and you guys still thought that. Unbeknownst yep. to you, um, Nathan was not leaving town, but he started this game. He played the first half over Skype, and then do you remember what happened, Mike, after the pizza showed up? Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, we were we were all at your house except for Nathan, who was remote. And then when we took a pizza break, all of a sudden Nathan just walks downstairs from your upstairs in the room, and we're like, "What? What? How did? Why are you here?" Well, I want the pizza. What? <laughs> why are you here, Nathan? Well, hey, you Nathan. Told me to- come here and keep muted until we got this bit and do the bit. <laughs> oh. So Aww, there goes the, our there goes our attempt at an organic viewer surprise. Yeah, don't, don't, 
immediately tell the audience that it was a bit. Um, yes, yeah, so Nathan, <laughs> Nathan and I, Nathan and I had conspired together, and I had set him up upstairs in our spare spare bedroom. So he was actually in the house with us the whole time. He was in the house the entire time. <laughs> yeah. Scream. Anyway, um, he was in the house playing on Skype from upstairs. In fact, Nathan, you were having to be pretty quiet because you didn't want anyone to pick up on the fact that you were actually upstairs. That's correct. I had to keep it down to make sure we kept on the uh, old down low. If I remember correctly, too, you had like strategically pointed the camera to like only a blank wall so that no one could tell he was like in a part of your house, too. Correct? That that's yeah, correct. Were, were, Nathan, were you rolling your dice in a funny way somehow because you had no a table near you where you would set up your your, your computer? Uh, I, I was, I was. I had uh, backed a chair, as Mike said, to rob against a uh, blank wall so no one could, you know, deduce where I was. And I think I had my laptop on top of a laundry drying rack. And I was, I was really just rolling dice into my cupped hand. I, I was hey, played play legit, played legit, Scouts Honor. But <laughs> I, I think it kind of colored my uh, upcoming expectations for our remote play. Wouldn't I? Wouldn't big fan. <laughs> That's fair. If only we had heeded that warning. I never did ask you, Nathan. So as you're upstairs playing, we, we played for a good solid 20 minutes. Certainly not a half hour, but probably a solid 20 minutes before the pizza showed up. While you're upstairs playing and trying to run this over Skype while in the same house, are you having any feelings like this is really stupid and not worth the joke? Or were you just eager to pop downstairs and surprise everybody? Okay, folks at home, these two guys know me, and I'll do anything for a dumb bit. I was super into this. I've done much dumber things for much worse jokes. Nice. The reaction was so worth it because, so Brian wasn't here. Brian didn't play in this game, which is another reason he's not recording with us today. So it was just Mike, you and Chris, your reactions were so good that to me, it was totally worth it. Yeah, no, I, I was just totally like, wait, who the hell is this stranger in the house? Is this the pizza guy? Oh wait, no, that's Nathan. So, back to the game real quick. Um, you guys chased down the the, the assassin. Um, Nathan, as I recall, you, um, Merciel, actually killed the assassin. In the show notes, um, I, I noted, here's the exact note from the show notes. Merciel and the assassin exchange knife attacks like Casey Ryback and William Stranix. So, of course, a reference to that cinema great Under Siege. Um, did that description come up during the game i hope not because i'm not sure other people are (laughs) (laughs) i've never seen the movie i'm sorry i haven't ever seen it either so obviously dusty that was like all your head cannon that's (laughs) sadness i was hoping it was all of us but yeah nathan a a theme of our game is that we reference these 80s and 90s movies and you're always like nope have never heard of it pretty much sadness all right well there's this knife fight at the end of Under Siege between Steven Seagal and Tommy Lee Jones that when I was a kid, I was like, whoa, this is amazing. But now that I've seen things like fight science where they talk about, anyway, I'm going way too deep on this on this bit. Okay, well, that was in the show notes. It, 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 it must have come from me or in the recap notes. So you guys, this was our first experience with an interrogation. You... uh interrogated this assassin. Um, Ultimately, you killed her slash she killed herself, you could argue. 
to, to avoid giving up information. Did this interrogation so, – so a theme of our ETU game, right, is that you had a tough time getting physical with the female characters because it just felt wrong in the modern era with the rule of law. But here we are in a pseudo-medieval time, in a, in a pseudo-medieval you know medieval Europe type setting, dealing with you know arguably torturing and interrogating a female character. Did you have those same feelings of reluctance? Both of our characters were female, so no. Have not oh. we'll solve problem. Yeah, I think the I think the 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 cringe comes in right when it's that specific male on female violence. That's just definitely kind of a hard thing to swallow, which it shouldn't be easier, right? When I'm role playing a female to do female on female balance, I'm sure there's a whole conversation there about psychology and all sorts of stuff. But I mean, on the surface, it's a little easier to swallow because in the movies, when there is you know, women in violence. It's normally woman on woman violence just to, you know, not, not broach that subject. I really like the notion that you were that into character. I have some thoughts. It's odd and rare. Uh, to my, your credit, Mike, I agree with you. We were both playing female characters. Uh, I'd also say that up to this point, we'd had a uh, fair amount of frustration kind of coaxing out the plot thread maybe. And, you know, we're going to finish it here now. My thought is, though, uh, Dusty, you had been fairly lenient on us as far as consequences for our actions in the campaign so far. We'd done much you know, wild and weirder things than just attacking someone randomly. So I think we felt more empowered to do so here. In the uh, other game, it's, like I said, modern settings, so we naturally quit to real-life consequences uh, back to the male-female violence thing. So I think it's only natural that we'd be more liberal to, you know, solve these problems like this it's almost like a video game who cares so in the etu game was i better at pushing consequences than i was here or just the modern setting implied consequences uh considering the three murderers one count of arson <laughs> grand theft auto yeah the the modern setting is definitely the contributing slaughter uh, no <laughs> Got it. We've never really talked. We talked a little bit in the uh, Tomb of Horrors game about Brian's dwarf character getting turned into a female. But you guys both, and I have you on the podcast right now, um, so the two of you together, you both played female characters for an entire campaign. And I've read lots of horror stories where that goes terribly. We had no horror story moments. We had nothing bad happen. Was it is it different? Was it different? Did it feel different? What was it like to role play a female character for an entire campaign? You know, for me, it it didn't feel too too different, right? So I didn't I, I didn't want to like ham it up, right? I didn't want to focus on you know my character being a female. I didn't want to do overt female things. I you didn't you know want to make you know tasteless jokes about female anatomy and female systems and stuff like that. But one thing I did try to do when it came time to make a decision was say, is this a decision that, that, that someone who is a female may take an approach on who, who might, might think of it differently from a male? I didn't struggle on it too much, and I, I definitely played Kira closer to the, to the whole you know cleric thing and her god thing, but uh, I did try and keep that in the back of my head. Nathan? Sure. Um, let me run down Merciel's uh, priority charts here. One, cream. Cash rules everything around me. Two, comedy. Uh, N plus one, female. That, that'll come up eventually. It's not high on the list. Got it. 
So you guys were just both playing characters who happened to be female, which I think yes. is a perfect way to play it, and it's exactly why it never got weird. Yeah. Agreed. All right, cool. So you, you search the body, and here for the first time, I'm realizing in this campaign, in this Pathfinder campaign, that we're coming up on the end, the last session, and I really wanted the big bad to feel like the seeds had been planted early on. So unbeknownst to you guys, I spent a lot of time before this game trying to – I went through all the notes, all the, all the episodes – not episodes, sorry, all the sessions that we played before this to try to figure out who the big bad was. And I figured it out before we played the session. And in this session for the first time, I foreshadowed it. I foreshadowed it with the, 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 the black dragon hilt on the, the daggers. I foreshadowed it with the black dragon tattoo on the forearm. Um, we've already talked on previous episodes about how it, it was Black Fang's mother wound up being the big bad who showed up in the very first dungeon you kill Black Fang in the very first session. And then Black Fang's mom shows up at the end to avenge her son's death. And you didn't know that yet here. I'm just laying the groundwork for it. How did that work? Did you have any any clues here that that's what was going on? You know, I... I... I honestly can't say that I really strung that together until, you know, we were pretty much confronted by her. I think I was just thinking, oh, it's it's an assassin group and this is the symbol of the assassin group. I didn't I didn't put one and one together on that for a long time. And the black dragon sounds so like the villains in an 80s movie. I know. It's so it's so high fantasy too, right? So the first thing you think of, or I think of, I went immediately like to to Skyrim and the Assassins Guild and the the Black Hand and and all that stuff. Where it's like, oh, we're a crew of assassins. We got to have a badass symbol because we're assassins. Fair enough. So let's talk about the thing that we've been avoiding up, up till now. So after you deal with this assassin, after you search her, after you find all these black dragon clues, and I, and I gave you those, after that, one day, you're in the Rusty Dragon Inn, and you notice that there's a cloaked man wearing a very similar uniform as the first assassin. And he's just straight up watching you, blatantly, making it obvious. You guys confront him. He's like, yeah, I'm here to watch you. And you try to you try to push him into a fight. He's not having any of it. He's he's playing it peaceful. Um, Mike, you got real frustrated. Oh God, yes. Talk yes. about that, man. So we've talked about it a lot before in Gamer Brain, right? So so it's it's definitely my analytical puzzle solving side going crazy. You know, I'm I'm in Zelda mode. I'm flipping the switches in the right order, but the door just won't open, right? So. So that that really gets me frustrated when I've I've got all this empirical evidence I, I can use against this guy to present in in cop mode to make a case to say this man is obviously associated with this assassin's guild. He's got the exact same knife, the exact same tattoo. He's he's you know harassing us. He won't you know leave our personal space. And then I kind of get into that modern you know modern thinking, right? You know, there there are guys who get interrogated for for having you know specific gang tattoos that they may have their whole life. They'll take him in and interrogate him for eight hours, but the guards wouldn't wouldn't lift a finger against him. And I think that really frustrated me was just the the amount of empirical evidence, and and I couldn't convince the guards to to see my my case. And 
if you had been the guards, you could have pulled that off, but you weren't the guards. Right. And the, and the guards were like, well, this man has done nothing wrong. I think I failed a couple of roles, too, that definitely worked against me. Yeah, maybe, but I just wasn't going to let you. I mean, like, like this guy was here to observe, and, and talking to him just wasn't going to be productive, and you kept going, kept going, kept going with it. I, I Honestly, Mike, I put the failure on me. I should have recognized, and I should have had this moment where I was like, hey, Mike, this isn't going anywhere. Like, this guy's yeah, here to watch yeah, yeah. you. you know, that's all. You're not going to get anything else from him. I should have dropped that on you. Um, I got better in later sessions, and I got better in ETU about just, just dropping that knowledge when yeah. I see us going down a wrong path, when, when I became more interventionist. Um, Nathan, any thoughts watching that from the outside as, as we all, as, as you're now sitting with the group physically at the table, you know, post-pizza, watching this unfold? Any thoughts? Mostly what Mike and you have already stated. Uh, I was examining the situation, and uh, let me ask you, was there a right thing to do here? Because we no. poked and prodded the guy and could obviously get information out. I want to say we even left and did something else. He followed us along, so it yeah. seemed like this was clearly the MacGuffin. This was the, yeah, I got to solve your uh, stalker puzzle, but I, I don't know what we could have done that wouldn't have ended kind of where we did, short of you intervening like you've talked about. Like, I, I didn't see a way to solve this. So we ended the session a bit early uh, for a different reason, and I'll actually get into that reason in a second with the, with the bubble. Um, what I was going to move you towards was the anti-party. And I wound up doing the anti-party in a, in a later game. Um, you guys confronted the anti-party in a warehouse. But if you will recall, this session I had set up on uh, Roll20. And you guys noticed that I had inside the, the tavern, um, in some of the rooms grayed out on the GM side of the screen was the evil cleric, the evil fighter, the evil um, whatever. And then this guy was the evil rogue who are all monsters in the beginner box. I was going to move toward that confrontation with the black dragons. And then we just ended the session, ended the session early, but this guy and dealing with this guy just wasn't going to be productive. It was, it, there were more clues to get you to, to that confrontation. So the bubble, do you, Know what I mean when I say the bubble? Absolutely. But why don't you explain for our listeners? <laughs> I've been talking too much, Mike. What, what, what do you think the bubble is? So, so the bubble is is that uh, that that aura around the game where everybody's soaked in and concentrated, and and we're all engaged, and we're all you know role playing, and if not role playing, at least paying attention. And, and it's just that 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 engagement i hate to keep using that word again but being being super engaged in the game and when that bubble gets burst it's really hard to get back to that same level and that bubble got burst over and over this game it this happens. session yeah we were playing this is the first time we'd been playing at my house so we were playing at a different facility before that that wouldn't work out for a lot of reasons in this game um, and now we're playing at my house for the first time. And at this time, I had a five-year-old. You know, she's six now, but she was five at the time. We were playing in the kitchen, which is the main through fair of the house. You know, my wife's coming through. My daughter's coming through. My daughter's walking up. Hey, what are you guys doing? Daddy? Daddy? And your daughter is hey, already enamored with D&D, which is super adorable. Oh, yeah. It's awesome when she comes and asks questions. But, yeah. She and I play. Um, yeah. But it's funny how with you guys, 
when we're safe, when we're ensconced in a, in a closed door room. And I feel safe to use the voices. I feel safe to role play the bad guys. I feel safe to use goofy turns of phrase. And I feel safe to use sort of archaic turns of phrase to really, you know, try to sell you on the environment, to sell you on the setting. And the minute my wife walks by, I'm like, uh, and I'm watching her walk past and I'm being awkward about role playing. <laughs> yep. As you guys, as it's your turn to talk, I see you guys looking at her. Or looking at Margot, um, so we, we couldn't curse as freely. Just so many things about it. we just were disturbed, disturbed, disturbed. Well, I walked out of the session going. So we ended it early because of this, and I walked out going, "No, nah, we're done. We're not. We're not doing this anymore. We're not playing at my house anymore. Not until my daughter's older, when when she's a teenager, and she's in the hates hates my guts stage. She doesn't and, care about dad and his stupid old friends. Exactly. When she won't talk to me, I'll be like, awesome. Time to have the game at home again. <laughs> Wait, what do you mean Silver old lining. friends? Well, except for you, Nathan. Thank Forever you. Forever young. Nathan, by this point, by the time we reach that point, you'll be one of my old friends. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Bottom, bottom of my heart. All right. So what, what lesson? So how do we tie up this episode into some lessons learned? So have Nathan hide upstairs and surprise your game. <laughs> yep. That's always always an advantage. So I really leverage real life surprises. I prefer a kind yeah, of so. hauled out cake. That's usually a pretty good way to go. See, <laughs> actually, le- legit lesson learned. Legitimate lesson learned. There are times, you know what, I'm sorry, this, that's not even true. I was going to say there are times when the game is, is, is takes precedence over the friendship. That's not true. The friendship always takes precedence over the game, always. Yep. Yep, yep. Always. The friendship's more important than the game. You, you can put the game aside and pick it back up. The friendship takes precedence. So remember, don't take your game so seriously. Remember that the game is, at its heart, an excuse to get together with your friends and play. You know, and maybe not all games. Maybe there's some games where you know, you're streaming and you're selling admission and, and all this kind of stuff. But for your home game, the point is to be a vehicle, to be an excuse to get together with your friends. So let the game be secondary to your friends and feel free to leverage the game to pull a goofy joke. Fair enough? I think that's a great lesson. I might also add a location, location, location. Yeah, the bubble. Be conscious of the bubble. Be conscious of, for us, it's, it's you know, having my wife who, who is very put together and very serious and, and having her walk by when I'm doing a goofy voice kind of takes me out of it. Um, whatever those things are for you, to Nathan's point, location, 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 pick a place to play where you can get that bubble because, my God, the bubble, at least for us, is really fragile. Yep. And then finally, a lesson I've learned um, and keep learning. And I think I, I, I'm getting better at it. I got better at it through the entire ETU campaign, but I was still learning it even way back then, is intervene as the GM. When you sense the players floundering, when you sense things aren't going anywhere, stop, take a deep breath, take a pause, and just say, hey, you know what, let me intervene here. Like in that ETU game, the the last session, hey, you know what, let me intervene. This fight's going on too long. People are getting bored. Chris, just, you know, roll a D4, divide by two. That's how many wounds you take. All right, great, moving on. So feel free to step in, call a timeout, you know, huddle up with your players, and then move on. Fair enough? Fair enough. Fair enough. 
All right. That's RPG Lessons Learned this week. Thank you for listening. People call them postmortems, evaluations, appraisals, reviews, retrospectives. We call them Lessons Learned, and we're sharing ours with you.